Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Esquivel-Campo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week on Run Tell This, two mass shootings in one week. Keith shares his very personal connection to gun violence. Plus, legendary journalist Ann Curry joins us with her reaction to media coverage of the Atlanta spa shootings and rising anti-Asian violence. Hey guys, so uh, Wes is on an assignment this week. Uh, it'll be just me and Keith holding it down. So we've had the second mass shooting in a week. Um, it almost feels like this is a very painful byproduct of the world opening back up again. It kind of seems like the American way. You know, lockdowns end and mass shootings start up again. So the president is now calling for an assault weapons ban and other gun legislation. We can ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country once again. I got that done when I was a senator. It passed. It was law for the longest time. And it brought down these mass killings. We should do it again. You know, my mother just passed. And once you've just been through that, you see death a little differently. In the last two mass shootings, when I've been watching the coverage, I've been thinking about what the families are going through in a much more intimate, connected way than I had prior because I just buried my mother. So I'm thinking about them planning arrangements, picking out what their loved ones are gonna wear for the funeral, trying to go through their belongings and decide what they wanna keep and what they're gonna throw away. All of the really intimate, personal things that happen when someone you love dies. I think of how much more compounded all of that grief must must be when you have a young person, someone in the prime of their lives, and when it's completely unexpected, when you get a phone call that says, your wife, your mother, your daughter is dead because of a shooter, a random shooter. And you look at the destructive capability of these assault rifles how many people they are able to kill so quickly. And there is a legitimate question about whether or not these should be in the hands of civilians. These are weapons of war, but I have no faith that there's going to be any policy response or any legislative response. I lost faith in that after after Sandy Hook. When a man can walk into a building and slaughter dozens of children weeks before Christmas and you have Obama in the White House and you have all this political will to make change and nothing happens even then, I lost faith completely that anything will ever change when it comes to gun control in this country. I have a little bit of a different experience with death. A friend of mine from back in the neighborhood had um, made made this shirt, made a hoodie. That's the name of everybody my age from my neighborhood that's been murdered in about the last 20 years. I counted. It's 43 names. We don't we don't care about violence in this country. And I've known that since I was a teenager because I grew up with with that. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've been going to, to, to the to funerals of the murdered since I was 16. Um, 
I I know people who have been shot who who've been you know shot with all kinds of weapons. I know somebody who be who survived being hit with a with a shotgun at almost point blank range. We were in high school when that happened. My own grandmother was hit by a bullet from an assault rifle that came through her windowsill when she was in her sixties, sixties or maybe early seventies. Um, we don't give a fuck about violence in this country. I mean, can be honest. Um. We, we start to pretend to care about violence in this country, depending on who it happens to. We only pretend about it long enough to get through a news cycle. Or we've accepted it. We've accepted it almost as an inevitable risk, right? Like, oh, people get in car accidents all the time. As though there aren't things that we could do and measures we could put in place to be safer when it comes to gun violence. But I think people approach it in the same way. It's, it's just a risk. There's always crazy people out there. It becomes a conversation that at some point is ex- it gets exhausting. It gets exhausting like talking about racism. It gets exhausting like, talk, like talking about, uh, you know, almost it gets exhausting like talking about poverty. It gets ex- exhausting like talking about sexism. It becomes one of these things that we know exists and is, and is tangible and, and impacts Many, many people's lives, but we've been talking about it forever and nobody's done anything about it. And, you know, this conversation, unfortunately, is not going to is not going to change anybody's mind. Somebody who believes that there should that there should be unfettered access to any kind of weapon. It's the American way. America. America. For a lot of people. One of the factors that was most disturbing about the shooting is yet again seeing a white shooter taken into custody alive. And I was thinking about this this morning that it's not a bloodthirst, right? I don't want people to be shot by police. Suspects should be taken into custody alive. It's this visceral reaction to the blatant injustice that this man was taken into custody alive after killing 10 people, including a police officer, largely unharmed. I think he had a boo-boo on his leg. And you know that right down the street, Elijah McClain was killed for no reason as he was trying to walk home. Stop. Stop. I have a right to stop you because you're being suspicious. It's just this painful reminder yet again of these two Americas. It's painfully obvious that we have a, we have... We have a trend, a very clear trend, of white males committing mass shootings with assault rifles in public places where multiple people die, and those people and and those people are appre- are apprehended without violence and without incident when we know we see how many black people who are unarmed uh, and many times not yet accused of a crime and not charged with anything end up dead. So we're not saying that every single black person that encounters a police, I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's, a, it's a straw man argument, right? It's, it's ridiculous to think that anyone is arguing that every time black people encounter, encounter a police officer that that, that, that person is gonna end up dead. That's not what we're saying and it would be ridiculous to say, to say such a thing. But it doesn't mean that we cannot that, that we can't focus on the very clear pattern. There's a lot of data about American policing that backs this up, right? We know 
for example, that, that African-Americans are more likely to be in violent altercations when, when police get involved uh, than, than whites are. So this is just another manifestation of what we already know in terms of uh, in terms in terms of bias in policing, in terms in terms of disparate treatment by by police of different suspects. You know, we saw it on the Capitol on January sixth. There's that image of the police officer walking the woman down the stairs so that she wouldn't slip and fall and hurt herself on the stairs as she was leaving the storming of the Capitol in an attempted insurrection. And it was just so stark compared to the images that we saw over the summer with the you know Black Lives Matter protesters of peaceful protesters being you know tear gassed and hit over the head, journalists being attacked um, by police for covering the protests. So there's just this, this such a stark dichotomy that that is so upsetting. We look at who commits these mass shootings most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, it, it, it's a it's a white male between. You know, a white male of a certain age, you you know, it's usually somebody in there, you know, from early 20s to, to you know, 30s, um, you know, they're typically using a, a assault weapons. Like there are very common characteristics about all of these shootings. And yet some of the policies that that may be or at least, you know, one of the most important policies that may uh, that may help ameliorate this problem specific to the weapons that are being used. Like that's not being addressed. We, we, we have mass shooting after mass shooting. We still have not addressed the availability of, of assault rifles. Um, you know, there are lots of there are lots of thoughts and prayers. Lots of thoughts and, and then, prayers. Thoughts and, and prayers then we, save and lives, then no right? Meaningful legislation. No legislation. Lots of thoughts, thoughts and prayers. Lots of, lots of thoughts and prayers. And then no and then no meaningful legislation or no meaning, meaningful policy changes uh, with regard to the availability of these weapons that that tend to be used by particular people in a, in a particular context. Um, and, and then again, when we start to talk, when we start to talk about privilege, what is happening in this country that a certain subset of white men of a certain age with access to these guns is using them in, in, this, in this way to create this kind of public carnage? Somehow we, we manage as a, as a society, as institutions, to bring forth ideas and resources to address specific problems, especially as it relates to law enforcement, and especially as it relates to law enforcement's responses to other specific parts of the population. We ended up with, with mass incarceration in the Rockefeller uh, disparate drug sentencing laws as a response to crack cocaine in the inner cities. We ended up with a policy response that, last for, that lasted for decades. It proves that we can have a policy response and we can have an institutional level response when there's a very specific pathology and a very specific problem. There's not the political will to, to do that, especially from a law enforcement perspective when it comes to these white men who look alike, who are the same age, who many of them come from the same background, grab AR-15s, and decide to cut down 50 people in a movie theater. And that's the argument that I'm making. As I mentioned earlier, this is the second mass shooting in a week. Last week, a gunman killed eight people at three Atlanta spas. Six of the victims were Asian American, raising concerns about an increase in anti-Asian violence. So we're joined now by my friend and former colleague, the one and only Ann Curry. 
First of all, you're the, the first non-black guest we've ever had. So welcome. <laughs> Honored. Thank you. <laughs> you. You are breaking that barrier in a very important way. It's important to hear directly from those who are in the communities that are affected. And that's something that we talk about on the show a lot, how black voices are not incorporated enough into the coverage um, in ways that are meaningful. And so we didn't want to be guilty of making the same mistake. Thank you for being here. I, I would love your thoughts on the, the coverage of the shooting. What are your thoughts on the way that this has been covered this week? In this particular case, what has happened is that it told a story right off the bat about a man with a gun who has a sexual addiction and a bad day, quoting a police spokesman. He was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope. And, um, and yesterday was a really bad day for him. And this is what he did. For whatever reason, there was hardly any reporting about what witnesses, what um, survivors, what family members of victims um, would say um, about the facts of the situation. And as a result, a false narrative came out that may, may or may eventually be true uh, that, that uh, this man had a sexual addiction and all that stuff. It reminds me of uh, a little bit about a story that came after in the in the wave of Islamophobia that happened after 9-11 about the three young um, Muslim people uh, who were living um, in their home and, 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 and a perpetrator, a neighbor came in and and killed all three of them. And and the initial narrative was that it was over a parking dispute. And it turned out there was no parking dispute. Uh, and, and in fact, they were just shot because they were Muslim. And I think that th this is the problem. What really is stunning in this particular case is how little we heard about from witnesses, from people we would normally. I know it's tough to get um, this information. I know how hard it is. Um, you know, but I think that if with in Georgia, there are um, there's a significant population of Asians, about 400,000. And if you have not, as a reporter working there, not done your due diligence in making contacts, uh, you know, in that community, then then this is on you. You know, if you don't know um, uh, of how to get somebody to help interpret for you uh, into English, an Asian language, and there's a significant population of people in your community of speak that language, then that's on you. It actually, it brings me back to an early reporting experience I had, or not so much a reporting experience, but experience I had in, in a newsroom when I was in Boston. Uh, I was a writer at the Boston Globe in my 20s. And we had in Boston, it has a the unique status of have, of having the largest population of uh, people from Cape Verde uh, in uh, in the world outside of actually outside of actually Cape Verde. Right. So there's this chain of islands that exists off the west coast of Africa called Cape Verde it was a Portuguese colony. Many, many of these people migrated to, to the New England area and Boston in particular. And we often in that newsroom reported on that community. Um, there was there was violence in that community. There were a lot of different dynamics in, in that community. They were centered around the neighborhood of Dorchester, which is one of the actually the largest neighborhood in, in Boston. Um, but we had no one in the newsroom that was actually from like no working reporter that was from that community. No one 
who who spoke Portuguese or who spoke uh, the Creole that that they spoke. Um, just no no ties and no connections. So it's very reminiscent. And I think that that's replicated over and over again in American newsrooms where we don't have just the manpower and the staff who are who who have the sensitivity or who have the the skills or the knowledge base to be able to cover these communities when something does happen. We saw from the most recent mass shooting, uh, the one in Boulder, very soon after the shooting, we heard from, you know, witnesses from people who knew knew, the, knew what the community was how the community was responding uh, it, it was uh it was pretty stunning not to hear anything about and, and i understand i understand people don't want to talk if you don't have a relationship with them you haven't created sources um you haven't built sources over time you know, people may be less likely to talk to you if they're immigrants who, who if they, and I don't know, you know, I don't know what the circumstances were, but no matter what the circumstances were, there was a failure. It was a failure to report what was going on. It was a failure to gather the facts. It's also coming at a time, this mass shooting in a time of, of a steep rise in anti-Asian um, hate crimes, uh, what, almost, what, 4,000 in all 50 states. I've spent a lot of years covering the world, and I've spent a lot of years covering overseas, and specifically genocide. And what I've come to realize is that, is that fear and prejudice are like dry tinder. They build over time, quietly. People live together, and they, and, but that fear and prejudice builds. And all it can take is uh, a person in power uh, uh, or who, who, who wants to, um, you know, exploit an event for that dry tinder to get lit and roar in a fire that surprises even the person sometimes who inflamed it, who set that match. And I think that's what we're seeing today. Uh, and that's the context in which this mass shooting happened. I know for a lot of uh, Asian Americans across the country, uh, I've heard from many who've needed comfort and encouragement. To, and, I, and I've heard from people who are not Asian American who have expressed support. So I'll pose the question to you that was posed to a lot of us. How can we be stronger allies as, as journalists, just as the black community? I don't know that I have the answer to, you, to your question, Mara, but um, it is clear to me within the Asian community, which uh, Asian American community, there there is a greater coming together. Um, people who, uh, and that's across, uh, you know, there are 20 um, uh, eth uh, groups, ethnic groups um, represented in, among Asian American, different languages, different cultures, uh, but they're coming together you see young people uh, coming together with old people, uh, trying to protect their elders from this violence. And I think that uh, we all connect with that. I, I know that uh, people uh, who are Asian Americans connected with and have learned and been inspired by what uh, um, uh, the Black Lives Matter people have done, who've come out and said, look, we're not putting, and they've learned from each other. I think that there's a way to connect, you know, and, and to kind of help America finally fulfill um, at, at least look like it's going to finally fulfill um, its own ideals, you know? And I think that's what we need to come together and fight for. 
for each other. You know, there's a, a MLK talked about this. Um, Elie Wiesel has talked about this, this idea of silence, you know, that, that when we allow, uh, we don't speak up, you know, we don't say something, you know, any, all this stuff is difficult. It's hard. You know, people don't want to talk about it. When you talk about the idea of silence as kind of complicity, I've seen this slow build for the last year since our then president began referring to COVID as the China virus and saying terrible things like Kung flu. You know, you've been seeing this slow build and it seems to have culminated with this tragedy, with this shooting that finally got people's attention to say, wait a minute, what's going on with Trump over and over again? People, even till the very end, just thought he was so comical that they didn't take his words and his rhetoric seriously enough. There were people who thought the term Kung flu was funny. They didn't take it seriously enough. And that's part of what got us here. So do you feel that there was kind of the complicity of silence um, by the public at large and by the media as this was starting to grow and build? Look, the New York Times back in March 2020 did an article about this, start, started to document this. At that time, um, there, people were being spat upon. You know, we, there were stories of being, people being pushed um, and I think around that time, there was a, a man who, and his two children actually, who were slashed in Texas. So it was already beginning. And that reporting was in March, 2020, in the New York Times. But I think that largely uh, the answer is, is yes, there, there, it is true. There hasn't been the kind of response that there should have been in terms of the um, stories. To some degree, you know, I think the stories have been a drip, drip, drip. We had a, a, a terrible story about a man being thrown to the ground and killed. He was in his 80s uh, in California. It has been a build and and there has been a, a strong feeling in the Asian American community that there has not been enough reporting. You talked about it being the culmination. You know, I I don't know that this is the where it ends. I think that this could actually get worse. So about 4,000 cases nationwide since the coronavirus um, began, pandemic began. Um, that's a woeful uh, underreporting, given what I know about how um, degree to which Asian Americans are going to report something like this. Right. What do you mean? So, what do you mean by that? Uh, just the the, cul the culture. I mean, I you know, um, elderly people, uh, people. Uh, um, there's a feeling of I don't want to bring attention to this. I don't want to. I don't want to have it. Uh, I don't want to uh, make myself even more of a victim. I mean, even before the virus, even before the pandemic and the virus of of coronavirus and the virus, there was already a virus of hate in this country. You know, I think I don't know a single Asian American. I don't know a single one who doesn't have a story. Well, that makes me feel like we as have just failed so miserably because I consider myself an, an ally to all communities of color. And a lot of this is news to me. And and that I'm I'm ashamed of and, and embarrassed to say. Well, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, you know, I have to think uh, there are a lot of reasons for this. I mean, the truth is that, that as you know, that, that there's, there, it only takes a few Right. I mean, I, I've, we've all felt, um, I think most of us feel that the majority of people are, are good and are, aren't going to be, aren't going to attack, you know, obviously this is not 
who we think we are, but there, but there are those who will. And when others don't say something, do something, defend, if we don't, ha don't, don't see the support from, from people around us, it's easy to feel so alone and vulnerable. I think that also the other thing I would say, Mara, is that, you know, there is a part of, and I, I hope I'm not wrong in this, but, but this is how I see it. Uh, based on my upbringing, my mother was an immigrant from Japan. And that is this feeling that, you know, if you just put your head down and do the work, you know, they're going to, they're going to know you. They're going to celebrate you. And I think both you and I and Keith have all have felt have been able to find some success by just putting your head down and doing the work, you know. But the, the thing is that it doesn't take much. I mean, I know the pandemic is a massive event. It's a worldwide event. But still, you know, that an event could so disrupt and, and inflame people that, 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 in, that it could cause this level of hate and violence. It is to say that there's no putting your head down that fixes this. You know, it makes a difference that, that, that we represent. It makes a difference. But wow, how, how quickly, I, to me, it's just, it's a shock. I think that's part of the shock. I'm gonna call it, to, to a certain extent, an American myth about putting your head down and being able to, to just plug forward and, and find success. And I think we need to, we need to do a better job in our, in our industry of dismantling some of the, some of the assumptions and some of the myths about this nation that we live in. Um, we need to talk about what privilege means in some of these contexts that it, that it does that that there are limits to how far you can you can go by just putting your nose to the grindstone. And we also know that communities that get marginalized in those ways then become targets eventually for abuse because those are people who are seen as less as less powerful. And so all of those things are at play. And I think that younger journalists are starting to talk about this a lot more. The second thing that I that I wanted to get back to that you that you brought up is this idea of silence. This idea that when something doesn't impact you in particular, that you can afford to to be quiet about it, that you can afford to be to to not speak up if you think that what happened in Atlanta doesn't impact you because you're not Asian American. That you are that you are wrong. There's there's no disconnect between those between those actions and the actions that that have taken place and were directed at African Americans for centuries in, in this country. But there is one one kind of commonality in all these, um, a troubling commonality, which is the way that the shooter is treated when they're white. There's this humanization, this sympathetic portrayal of the perpetrator of these massacres after the fact. The, he, he was having a bad day. Um, oh, he was a quiet, really religious guy. He never bothered anyone. He was a little awkward. Whatever the circumstance may be, it's this humanization of these murders. Right. I, th I think like a lot of Asian Americans and I think a lot like a lot of Americans, it, it was shocking. Right. Uh, it was um, because, you know, there was no humanization of the of the community that had been targeted. Right. So it, it just was a stark, very stark 
um, disconnect and um, a lack of empathy, I think, and also a lack of just sort of good police work. You know, it represented a kind of a lack of uh, telling the full story. I, I, look, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't there. I don't know all the details that led him to say that, but I got to tell you, it, it, it just, it, it, it raised serious doubt as to whether, you know, uh, the investigators there who he represented uh, could adequately get to the bottom of what really happened. You had two businesses owned by Asian Americans who, you know, f where there are a lot of Asian Americans who work and now since um, as employees. And then now you hear that, um, you know, we, since then we've learned that uh, he frequented uh, one or two of these businesses, you know, so he knew who he was going to shoot, right? Uh, he knew who he was going to kill. And so it's just, you know, it's just, uh, uh, it just, it just, it was like, you know, hearing it was like somebody taking your heart and sticking in a vise, you know, you just felt like you wanted to explode, you know, you just couldn't understand how someone could have been so myopic. And, and um, so it's not as if uh, you don't want to hear the facts. You need to hear the facts of the case. For me, it felt like part and parcel of, of almost explaining for him, no, he said this wasn't about race. He was having a really bad day. He was the sex addict. He was struggling with this religious conflict. You know, it's this uh, this drumbeat, this effort to humanize these people in the hours after the crime has taken place. Their families haven't even buried them yet. And we're trying to rehabilitate the image of the murderer? And you don't see that when the perpetrator is not white. The demonization begins almost immediately. I think it becomes more pointed and more obvious when, when we're talking about victims. Law enforcement seems to readily be able to to find um, mitigating factors, to find to 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 find you know past crimes, to find you know anything in an individual's background, particularly when that per when that person is a person of color, and especially when that person is a person of color who's been a victim of police violence. Um, they're very readily able able to to find something in that person's background to cast some sort of aspersion as to why they may be responsible in some part for what happened to them whereas not not so eager to find a rationale or reason why as to why when white men commit mass shootings they 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 are responsible for what for what they've done I think journalists especially, we're not in a 24-hour news cycle. We're in a second-to-second -second news cycle. And I think that we're working very fast. And there's a kind of rush, and it leads to a rush in judgment. Already the, the perpetrator um, has, you know, shaded the victims with this sort of idea that they had, they, uh, they kind of raised the specter that these businesses had, um, you know, involved um, um, acts of sex that we don't know even now or it's true it hasn't been confirmed right? and it, as it's just like it, it casts the victims in this light and if they were sex workers that's fine i think there's a whole other conversation about respecting sex work as work another conversation but the, even now that's not been uh 
you know, been found to be factually true. So already this has happened. The, the initial narratives can be extremely dangerous if they're false, if they're wrong. And we've seen that uh, over and over again. Uh, and I'm, I, we'll see what this one tells us um, when we hear the full details. When we look back on it, we will see it as a failure, as a media failure. For whatever reason, whatever the reasons were, it was a failure. And clearly it's, it's exposed um, a lot of work that, that still needs to be done um, in newsrooms. Um, and thank you so much for your time, um, for your, your perspective on this. It's such a pleasure to see you again. I'm happy to be a, a part of this. I think that the two of you have asked some very good questions and you're highlighting a, a real struggle. This has been very painful to talk about. Well, thank you. We appreciate it so much. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Runtell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.